This is an ABC podcast. They arrived in droves with a message for the government. Thousands of farmers in India have blocked major highways near the capital, protesting against sweeping changes to the agriculture industry. We came here for our rights. This is the first time a government has forced farmers to hit the streets. Since the end of November last year, tens of thousands of Indian farmers have maintained a blockade around the Indian capital, New Delhi. The farmers are demanding the repeal of three farm acts, which allow for the deregulation of agricultural markets. The farmers believe the reforms will lead to the end of government support, which historically has resulted in stable incomes for millions of Indian farmers and the end of widespread famine. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince. This is Rear Vision on Radio National. What makes these protests so politically significant is that while agriculture accounts for only 15% of India's GDP, it employs almost 50% of all Indian workers, making it the largest employer in the economy. Arvind Panagaria is Professor of Economics at Columbia University. Agriculture accounts for about 15% of India's GDP today, but... What makes it very important and particularly politically important in India is the fact that 42 to 43 percent of the workforce is still in agriculture. And that is really what makes agriculture politically as well as sort of issues of poverty and livelihood extremely important. We're talking about a sector which is the largest employer in India. Kavita Kuragenti is the national convener of the Alliance for Sustainable and Holistic Agriculture in India. Unlike many other countries, as years go by, the land holding of each farm household is actually shrinking, while the proportion of people in our population who remain connected and dependent on agriculture is still very large, more than 50%, more than half of the people who are counted as workers. And the land holdings are just about one hectare per household on an average. So the fact that a large part of the the population is employed in a sector that contributes only 15% of GDP points to the fact that the earnings and incomes in that sector are not so high. Jean Drez, visiting professor at the Department of Economics, Ranchi University in India. And of course, over time, the land availability per capita is shrinking because the population is growing, and that is compensated to some extent by increases in agricultural productivity. But the agricultural incomes are not rising very fast, and that means that the farming community as a kind of occupation group tends to lag behind the rest of the population because the wages in other sectors are increasing faster. And I think that is what that is what is giving a feeling to the farmers that they are left behind and that they require more support. So how did this system of agriculture develop in India? To understand this, we must begin in 1947 with partition, Indian independence and the Green Revolution. Long years ago, we made a trip with destiny, 
At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. In 1947, at the time India got independence, partition of India into Pakistan and India left some of the best grain-producing regions on the Pakistan side of the border. Hatosh Singh Bal is political editor of The Caravan, an English-language magazine focusing on Indian politics and culture. India was a food deficit nation. And it was drought conditions in the 50s, early 60s that forced India to sort of embark on this what is called the Green Revolution, which basically used high-yield varieties of wheat and paddy with inputs of fertilizer and mechanization of agriculture to transform certain limited parts of the country into areas which were producing a great amount of food surplus. It was just two or three northern states where this food surplus of wheat and rice was being produced. And the marketing of this surplus was done via centralised state government markets called Mundis. Farmers sold their surplus in these markets, which were operated by elected committees known as Agricultural Produce Market Committees, or APMCs. And the main buyer at these markets was the Indian government. They purchased the grain at a minimum price to redistribute to the poor across India via a system known as the Public Distribution System, or PDS. The food surplus that the Green Revolution produced was basically born out of two states, Punjab and Haryana, which together have maybe just 2 or 3% of India's landmass, but produce maybe 50% of India's grain surplus. So we have two regimes that we are talking about, two systems that got built from the 70s. One is called the Public Distribution System, PDS, where the government itself becomes the largest player in the market and steps in to procure and buy directly from farmers and sell the grain across the country to poor consumers at subsidized prices. So the Food Corporation of India, which is managed by the central government, buys right now about 80 or 90 million tons of food grain every year at what are called minimum support prices, which are actually, in this case, subsidized prices, and is used to distribute to the poorer consumers through so-called fair price shops. At highly subsidized prices, it's almost free, actually. And that covers about 800 million persons. And it's a very important source of food security and economic security. The system is far from perfect. There has been quite a bit of corruption in the past. It has improved a lot in recent years. And the value of that food subsidy system has been dramatically demonstrated last year during the, during the national lockdown and then the economic crisis that followed because it became a tremendously important source of support for people who had lost their employment and livelihood. It's actually the biggest social security program in the world. And one of the fears with the laws that, being, that are being brought in is that it's going to constitute a kind of attack on this system. In principle, that system is not supposed to be affected by these new laws. I mean, there's nothing in the laws which prevents the central government from continuing to procure at minimum support prices and selling to the poorer consumers at subsidized prices. But I think the farmers fear that this is a kind of slippery slope 
this comes back again to this issue of mistrust, that the farmers don't trust the intentions of the government, and they feel that the next step after these farm laws may be to attack this system of food subsidies. And that would have quite dramatic consequences, both for the farmers who are selling their produce to the Food Corporation of India and for the poor consumers who depend on the rationing system in times of crisis. On the other hand, we also have something called the Mandi system. And the Mandi regime is something that is supposed to have agricultural markets regulated, including of paddy and wheat, but not limited to those. And here, institutions of elected representatives, local representatives of each mandi of farmers and traders who buy from farmers were created. And they were government bureaucrats and officials who were acting as the oversight and regulatory bodies. So the idea was that the farmers in a particular area would form a kind of cooperative or at least an organization, and they would elect a committee, the APMC committee, the Agricultural Produce Marketing Committee, and then the farmers would get together through this committee to auction their produce to the highest bidder. So that was a way of protecting the farmers And these mandis or those market spaces are supposed to have labs which were testing the produce for quality. And there was an entire architecture, an ecosystem. And this is what we call as the mandi regime. And the mandi regime was meant to protect farmers' interests with the government standing there and saying that we have the responsibility to take care of you in your interfaces with markets. And we'll make sure that buyers and traders don't cheat you. While the mundies or markets were set up to protect the farmers, some critics argue that this hasn't always happened. What happened later is that these APMCs didn't really work the way they were supposed to work. They were not democratic, for example. In fact, in some states... The members of the APMC committee are not elected by the farmers, they are designated by the state government. And then, of course, vested interests tried to capture some of these APMCs. And so the claim that the government is making now, the central government in India, is that to liberate the farmers from exploitation by the APMC itself, these laws enable the farmers to sell outside the APMC to whoever they like. Under the first of the acts introduced last year by the Modi government, farmers would no longer be required to sell their surplus through these government markets or mandis. It gives the right to the farmer to sell the produce to whoever the farmer wants. Now, at the same time, the status quo is maintained in the sense that, you know, if the farmer wants to continue to sell in the mandi, that's perfectly fine. No Monday is going away. So none of the laws really do away with the existing Monday system. So if the farmer wants to continue to do what the farmer is doing today, there is no change. The farmer can do that. What the legislation does is give greater option so that if the farmer says, I'm going to sell to another private buyer, then the farmer under the new law is authorized to do that. He has the right to do it. So what is your sense of why the farmers are objecting? If the changes are going to give them more options and potentially give them a bigger market in which to sell their produce, 
Why are they objecting to it? Very good question. Yes, very good question. Here is why. First of all, it is very critical to understand that the protests are concentrated in Punjab, a little bit from Haryana and a little bit from Western UP. Why is that concentrated right there? Now, the situation in Punjab particularly is this. The Punjab government itself collects about 6% tax on what the government procures in Punjab from the farmers. Commission agents collect another 2.5%. This is a fairly large sum of money because one-third of the produce nationwide, but actually almost 80% of rice, for example, in Punjab, and similarly large proportion, I don't know the percentage exactly, of wheat is being procured in Punjab and roughly the same percentages in Haryana by the government. So for the larger farmers, this is the big issue. Now, the fear of the commission agents is that if the private mandis come into competition, they'll tend to lose commissions. And a lot of the commission, about almost half of the commission agents double up as farmers. And financially, this is a powerful group. And it certainly has been very much behind financing a lot of the protests that are ongoing. And they are themselves also agitating because, you know, half of them, as I said, are doubling up as farmers and another half actually have somebody in their families or in extended family who is a farmer. And this is why a very important demand of the protesters is that they want legislative guarantee for the MSP that all purchases, the government ought to legislate that all purchases will be done at the minimum support price. Of course, that the government cannot do. It simply cannot deliver on on that sort of demand. But, you know, in states where the government really doesn't do much procurement, there is no movement. The Punjab government also is very much behind the movement. They they are supporting it. And that's, of course, because they get to collect 6% tax on the purchases by the central government. Who is footing the bill? It is the Indian taxpayer. And 2.5% for the commission agents. 8.5%, what are they doing for it? Not very much. Say, let's take the case of Punjab. There is about an 8% fees that is paid at the Monday system. This 8% purchase fees is basically at 2.5% that goes directly to maintaining the Monday infrastructure. About 2% of the fees goes to the state to maintain the rural roads that allow farmers to transport grain to the mandi. Another 2% goes to the brokers who sit at the mandi, who provide labor to unload the farm produce brought by the farmers, to store it, to dry it, to weigh it. They provide their own machines, so they get a commission from the purchase to maintain their infrastructure. This is the system under which grain procurement is done by the central government from the mandis. The removal of the fees and the moving away of the food corporation and the possible entry of private players who will not work on the mandi system is only possible for large corporate players. The idea that a small player would be able to bypass the mandi system, go directly to farmers and set up a parallel infrastructure across the state just is not possible. So the only possible entrants who will bypass the mandi system will be large corporates who have the financial wherewithal to set up a parallel system to the mandi system it requires a large amount of investment. Of course, there will be certain savings because they will not be paying the fees that other private, smaller private players will be paying because they are forced to use the Monday system. 
with the central government as well moving out of the Mandi system, this essentially means the death of the Mandi system. This actually has been tried in some Indian states, in particular the state of Bihar, since 2006, under very much similar arguments that are being made out for the law now. The result in Bihar is that actually the infrastructure of Mandi's collapsed. And today, in Punjab, the amount that the government pays is about 1,800 rupees for one quintal of rice. The farmer in Bihar realizes about 1,300 rupees per quintal. On the same rice, he's realizing 500 rupees less because of the entry of private players. On the other hand, consumers in Bihar are not getting rice at any rate cheaper than the consumers in Punjab. This 500 rupee deficit is being taken up by middlemen. So contrary to what the laws today claim, that this will eliminate the inefficiencies of the Mandi system and take away the fees, what the implementation of these laws in states, in some states has already shown is that actually creates far greater inefficiency, fattens the very middlemen the new laws claim to take away and is not beneficial either for the consumer or the farmer. This particular law is at the centre of the debate. This is Rear Vision, I'm Annabel Quince, and today we're looking at the story behind the farmers' protests in India. Protesters are campaigning against laws that give private enterprises greater power to circumvent heavily regulated wholesale markets and deal directly with farmers. So would the deregulation of the Mundi system benefit large corporations more than small farmers? And are there large corporations interested in becoming involved in Indian agriculture? Absolutely. I think that is the driving force behind these acts. There are some gigantic companies like Reliance, which has enormous power, not only financial power, but a lot of political clout as well, and already operate in all kinds of different sectors and have invaded some sectors and created virtual monopolies. For example, they have invaded telecom and reduced the number of players to just two or three. And they can move very fast into agricultural marketing. In fact, they have very ambitious plans to short circuit the entire food supply chain and deliver food directly from the farmer to the consumers in a few hours, possibly affecting the livelihoods, not only of the farmers, but also of all the people in between, the street vendors, the retail sellers, and so on, and the commission agents, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are companies like Adani, which are eyeing the Food Corporation of India. The Food Corporation of India is a very big buyer of agricultural commodities, and especially rice and wheat, because there's a system of food subsidies in India, which involves the Food Corporation of India buying at subsidized prices from farmers and then distributing food at subsidized prices to consumers. Companies like Adani are hoping to move into that and act as contractors for the Food Corporation of India. The second piece of legislation introduced last year by the Modi government removed previous limits on the storing or hoarding of grain. Farmers fear this will allow large corporations to compete with or replace the Government Food Corporation. That is one reason for the, the law that pertains to storage of food commodities. Basically, the limits on food storage are being removed. And that will enable some of these big companies to take over 
some of the work of the Food Corporation of India and make a lot of money from it. So I think there's no doubt that there are big corporate interests at stake and that they have influenced these laws. And that is one of the reasons for the mistrust of the farmers because they feel that the government is doing the job of these big companies and not protecting their own interests. But many farmers currently protesting on the outskirts of New Delhi have themselves wanted reform. So what kind of reforms have the farmers wanted? All of us have been asking for reforms, both in the production paradigm, so that we adopt a low-cost agriculture model, which also conserves our natural resources, but at the marketing end also more direct marketing channels, so marketing directly to the consumer, more number of mandis to be set up, more infrastructure around storage, go-downs and silos and so on, so that farmers can retain their produce coupled with good credit systems to keep your produce but still have some cash flows coming to you as credit, various things. So people like us have been asking for reforms. Those reforms have been disregarded when the government emulates reforms in a macroeconomic context that are directly imported from elsewhere in the world. Reforms that have allowed big capital to have a greater facilitative ecosystem where they can operate, no licenses, no security deposits, as I was talking about. Generally, easier operations for private enterprise is the kind of reforms that the government has embraced, whereas the kind of reforms that we have been talking about, that farmer movements have been talking about, is that that is driven by a livelihoods perspective. And the current protests in India are a resistance against reforms that have been adopted to facilitate private enterprise of big capital and not private enterprise of farmers and small players in India. Some economists argue that these reforms are just the beginning and what is needed to boost farm incomes is to move large numbers of farmers out of agriculture and into other sectors of the Indian economy. The big change in agriculture has to really come from the job creation in industry and services. They have to really do what industry and services did in countries like South Korea, Taiwan, China, that, you know, they massively created jobs in these countries and farmers moved out. I can give you a South Korean example. 1965, as much as about 65% of its workforce was in agriculture. Today, about 5%. I don't think India will ever get to 5%, at least, you know, not in 50 years. But at least it needs to come down to 20 to 25% in 15 years' time. That is where the big change will come. Higher incomes will allow farmers to modernize. Currently, you know, with such small farms, you can hardly use even a tractor effectively on such small farms. Transformation in developing countries has always consisted of moving large proportion of the workforce out of agriculture into industry and services. That is the big challenge. And this is why the creation of good jobs in industry and services is really the most important thing India needs to do. There's no doubt that Indian policymakers have always had this imagination and I dare say always dreamt about 
India's development trajectory being similar to other countries, that farmers need to be pushed out of villages and out of agriculture. We cannot have so many people in the agriculture sector and that they need to get into urban India and into other sectors. But the reality is that the other sectors don't have even growth anymore. Just in the past four quarters or so, we've had an economy which didn't even have growth in the other sectors, whereas agriculture, even during the COVID times, had growth that it had posted. And if I go back beyond the past one or two years, these are sectors, the service sector and the manufacturing sector, they had jobless growth in India. They were adding to the economy, but they were only making very small proportion of our population richer. They were not providing employment to the largest number of people in the country. And if you push out farmers from agriculture, it is not as though other sectors have a solution for them. We don't have an answer for this possibility of more farmers leaving agriculture because they have nowhere to go. And therefore, we need to take cognizance of this fact, acknowledge and recognize that most people will continue to remain in agriculture in India and try and make it a win-win proposition for them and the economy by taking a livelihoods perspective to the whole issue. That is the whole crux of the debate. So could the protests have an impact on the popularity of the Modi government and its electoral success? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that, you know, as an economist, it's, it's a question hard for me to answer. I suppose your underlying question is that come 2024, when the parliamentary elections happen again, could this really undermine the ability of the Modi government to return to office? could happen, but it will have to grow a lot bigger, meaning it has to really spread geographically. As of now, a large part of the farmer population that has supported Modi is in states which are not agitating. Punjab, BJP really doesn't have much of a footprint. In Haryana also, you know, farmers have not overwhelmingly voted for the BJP. But, but nationwide, if we are looking at 2024 parliamentary elections, the movement will have to get a lot, lot wider. It'll have to get traction in a large number of other states where so far I don't think it has any traction. The farmers from Punjab, Haryana and parts of what is called Uttar Pradesh and Rajasthan, the northern states, these farmers are all there part of these protests. These are perhaps the only farmers in North India who have the means and ability to actually leave their farms behind and have the wherewithal to sustain a protest of this nature for this period of time. The other farmers are actually literally living at subsistence levels and the very work they are involved in, their very status in terms of income, makes it impossible for them to actually reach Delhi and be protesting. There are now echoes of protests that are happening in the south of India, which is far too distant from Delhi for that to be part of the protests. But there seems to be a broadening of the protests from its narrow location first, just in Punjab and Haryana. It has already expanded to the western part of the largest state of India called Uttar Pradesh and to the western part of Rajasthan, which is another large state 
in the Hindi belt. These two states have far greater political weight because they have huge populations. And this is where Narendra Modi's Bharatiya Janta Party tends to draw its support. The political pressure from the involvement of these other states is actually higher on the government than the involvement of farmers from Punjab and Haryana. So this is the current status at the moment. The protests are actually spreading and gaining strength rather than weakening with time. So I do not see the protests going away. Hatos Singhbal, political editor of The Caravan. My other guests, Arvin Panagoria, professor of economics at Columbia University. Jean Drez, visiting professor at the Department of Economics, Ranchi University. And Kavita Kurugenti, national convener of the Alliance for Sustainable and Holistic Agriculture in India. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.